Milestones podcast, and this is episode 80. It came to my attention recently that COTAs, or Certified Occupational Therapy Assistants, and their roles in the workplace can be somewhat of a mystery to people that we as therapists work with. Not everyone understands what a CODA's role is in the world of occupational therapy, or even what their level of education is and generally how this all works. As OTs in general, we are quite used to this type of thing because occupational therapy in and of itself is not always well understood by others. I'm not going to explain that piece of it today for the show because I really want to focus on the role of CODAs and the relationship between CODAs and OTRs, or Registered Occupational Therapists. For OTRs, we just tend to refer to our title as Occupational Therapists. The R is just used in part of our signature, and many people also add an L to their signature as well. These delineate that we have the R registered with the National Certifying Board of Occupational Therapy, or NBCOT, and the L means we are licensed by our state board. For the purpose of today's show, I'm going to use the terms CODA and OTR just to keep things from getting confusing as to which OT I'm talking about. If you're listening to this and you don't have a good understanding of what occupational therapy is, you might want to stop now and go back and listen to episode 20 of the Milestones podcast to get that information first. I think that people in general tend to understand that OTRs perform evaluations on clients or students, write the goals and service plans, provide treatments and interventions, and also discharge clients or students from therapy services. OTRs also provide clinical or service supervision to COTAs or CODAs. In a nutshell, the OTRs have the ability under their licensure to complete all necessary tasks related to working with a client or student from beginning to end of the process. That is pretty easy for people to understand. It is less obvious to others what CODAs are able to do under their licensure. They usually just know that they are OT assistants, but what that actually means can be difficult to decipher just by mere observations in the workplace. In case you are just now thinking, since they are an assistant, they probably get coffee for the therapist and just do whatever they tell them to do. And you're wrong. And in case you are thinking they just do what paraprofessionals or paras do, you are also wrong. I hope that you are laughing because you know that CODAs are able to do much more than those things. But if you aren't laughing, then I hope you will listen and learn today. Not only will I talk about the role of the CODA in pediatrics, but I will also discuss ways that those of us who are OTs can help support the CODAs that we work with to make sure they are given the true roles and responsibilities according to their education and license. Now, I said I will be discussing this topic as it relates to pediatric settings, and that is because I work in pediatric settings. However, this information will apply to all settings. I just won't be giving specific examples for those other settings for the purpose of this show. Before I get into what it means to be a CODA, I mentioned paraprofessional or para before. Paras are often used 
in school districts to support the teachers and therapists as needed. The definition of a paraprofessional, according to merriamwebster.com, is, quote, a trained aide who assists a professional person, such as a teacher or doctor, end quote. And according to dictionary.com, a paraprofessional is, quote, a person trained to assist a doctor, lawyer, teacher, or other professional, but not licensed to practice in the profession, end quote. In the school system, paras are sometimes called teaching assistant or teacher's aide. Their roles vary depending on the state, the school district, and the needs of the specific location or situation where they work. The requirements needed to become a para also vary greatly depending on the country and the state. It can range from having a high school diploma or a GED to having an associate's degree at the college level. Now, with that being said, there are paras out there in the schools that have more education than that. However, generally, they are not required to have more than that. I'm sure there are exceptions to this, but generally speaking, that is the way that it works. When you see paras working in schools, they are assisting teachers in the classroom, especially with classrooms that have children with special needs. Paras can help with small groups, assist the teacher in managing the classroom activities, including organizing the classroom, and they might help tutor a student one-on-one under the direction of a teacher. Many paras work with one student all day long. Students that need more assistance to stay on task or just follow regular classroom routines. Paras can be assigned to work with these students and help them during classroom activities and overall daily school-related tasks. Paras typically carry out specific tasks given by the teacher. They do not make decisions about lessons or specific plans with the students. This is not a comprehensive list of things Paris can do, but the point of today's show is not really about Paris, so I don't want to go on about that for too long. I will say one other thing about Paris that they are extremely valuable to the school system, though. I know many teachers who would need a lot more coffee and chocolate to get through their days if there were no Paris around to help. The main reason I wanted to talk about paraprofessionals first is because I want you to understand that there is a difference between paras and occupational therapy assistants. They are, not, they are not the same. Their skills are not the same. Their education is not the same. CODAs are not OT paras. There is such a thing as an occupational therapy aide or tech or paraprofessional. The interesting thing about that is that at least by Kansas standards, Um, CODAs can supervise OT paras. In Kansas, an occupational therapy paraprofessional is a person who provides supportive services to OTs and CODAs. So, CODAs are called Certified Occupational Therapy Assistants, which indicates that they have taken the National Board exam for OTAs and passed. By passing this exam, they are now licensed to practice as a COTA or CODA, This is done through NBCOT, just like with the OTRs, as I mentioned earlier. After passing this test to obtain their license, they can register with their state to practice as a CODA. They are also required to take a certain number of CEUs to maintain their license. In Kansas, it is 40 CEUs every two years, and this is the exact same requirement that the occupational therapists have. 
Now let's get more into the practice and roles of a certified occupational therapy assistant. Actually, first I want to give my opinion. There are a lot of people in this world that have no clue what the role of an occupational therapy practitioner is. They don't completely get us. On top of that, CODAs have the word assistant in their title, which I do think implies to people that don't know better that they just assist the OT and do what we tell them to do. I wish I could come up with a different word to give as to have as part of their title, one that might give a different impression, but I really haven't been able to come up with one. As I did some research on this topic, I found that the debate about the CODA name has been going on for quite some time. Apparently back in 1994 or 95, the Ad Hoc Committee on CODA Issues debated about changing the name. But eventually they decided that the name wasn't the problem. The issue is we need to take responsibility in educating OTs and CODAs about the roles of each. This way, we will all have a good understanding of what our roles are, so we can help educate people around us when necessary. So that's, I guess, what I'm trying to do with this show. And I hope you all listening can do the same in your own practices. Okay, so I think the next thing to discuss is the relationship between CODAs and OTRs. Under the CODA's licensure requirements, they must work under the supervision of an OTR. This does not mean that the OTR is their boss, unless the OTR owns a therapy business and the CODA works for them. But in a school setting, for example, both the CODA and the OTR are supervised by an administrator in the school district. Supervision of the CODA by the OTR falls under service supervision. This is the level of supervision that the OTR will provide while the CODA is providing therapy services to students or clients. In some cases, the supervision will be considered close supervision, where there is daily direct on-premises contact. This type of supervision is recommended for new or recent CODA graduates. In other cases, the supervision may be considered general. This is where the OTR may not have direct contact with the CODA on a daily basis, but they should have direct contact at a minimum of three to five hours per week. In this case, the supervision can consist of reviewing their records or notes, observing their interventions, having meetings, or sharing assessments and interventions. The level of service supervision should be based on the experience and competency of the CODA. In addition to the natural logistics of the setting, for example, in a school setting, no matter what the experience and competency levels of the CODA are, they will often have direct contact with the OTR on a daily basis because they might work in the same school building every day. Although in larger districts or rural districts, this may not be the case. By the way, these guidelines were set by the American Occupational Therapy Association, AOTA, which is the National OT Association. They help set national standards for our practice so that everyone will be on the same page. Now, as I was saying before, the level of supervision depends on what AOTA calls service competency. Service competency is where the OT determines that the CODA will obtain the same information or results as the OTR would in the same situation. 
It is extremely important to determine the level of competency of a CODA before switching the level of supervision from direct to general. Again, general supervision is where you have a minimum of three to five direct contact hours per week. This contact does not have to happen on a daily basis. It is also recommended that there is no more than one and a half hours of travel time between the OTR and the CODA at any given time. And the OTR must be able to be reached by phone. So in order to determine level of service competency, the OTR and the CODA work together to figure this out. The easiest way to explain it is for the OTR to complete an evaluation with the student. And then both the OTR and the CODA would independently score the evaluation. Then compare the scoring results and determine whether they are the same or not. The OTR will ultimately decide when they feel comfortable that the CODA will obtain the same results that the OTR would in giving the assessments without direct supervision. Until this point, the CODA should continue to receive direct supervision. If you are using a standardized or criterion-referenced test that anyone can learn to administer by following procedures from the manual, the CODA can administer the test and the OTR can observe and make sure they are completing the test in a standardized manner. This cannot be done with, done with testing that requires special training or certification in order to administer the test. Service competency can also be established for therapeutic interventions, except this is done as a co-treatment type of situation where both the OTR and the CODA are working together with a student during a treatment session. The OTR can determine whether the same outcome and processes would have occurred if they had been the therapist providing the intervention rather than the CODA. The process of service competency is ongoing with the OTR, continuing to provide training and supervision with any areas where service competency has not been established yet. It may be that the CODA has met acceptable service competency for frequently used intervention procedures, but not for completing assessments yet. These are things that both parties need to communicate about and work together on to make sure that everyone is on the same page. It is recommended that AO, by, o, by AOTA that service competency can be considered established after you have three consecutive occasions. So if the OTR and the CODA are working on establishing service competency with, for example, using the Berry Developmental Test of Visual Motor Integration, the CODA must score the evaluation the same as the OTR on three occasions in a row. Something to remember, though, is that the OTR has the ultimate responsibility for the health and the safety of each client or student receiving services under their supervision. One of the major differences in this process between the OTR and the CODA is that while the CODA can be trained on administering and scoring certain assessments and screening tools, they are not able to interpret or analyze the information found during the process. They are only able to report the factual data received from tests. It is up to the OTR to interpret and analyze the data and information and come up with recommendations for ongoing therapy and team discussions. CODAs can provide factual information to the OTR that can be helpful during program planning and the development of goals. For example, if a student has an IEP goal of writing their first name independently, 
and the CODA has been working with a student on this activity, they can tell the OTR what they have observed and documented in their therapy sessions with that student. They can let the OTR know that the student has been able to write the first three letters of their name independently, but the last four letters of their name they can only write if the coder writes them first and the student copies them, for example. This is helpful information for an OTR who may not work directly with this student as often as the coda does. For example, when it is time to enter quarterly progress notes, this information can help the OTR determine where this child is with their progress in meeting their IEP goal. Remember that all of the information I've given you today is based off the recommendations from AOTA. You as the OTR and CODA team have to work together and figure out what is best in your individual situation. It may be that in your setting or specific situation, the CODA's role is just mainly to focus on providing treatments or therapy sessions with clients, and the OTR maintains responsibility for testing and assessments. This determination will vary depending on not only the setting, but the individuals involved in the OT process. As I said before, the ultimate responsibility lies with the OTR in making the decisions regarding service competency and all aspects related to therapy to ensure the health and safety of all the clients or the students. But hopefully, if you work together, you will be able to build a working relationship, which allows the CODA to utilize their skills to the best of their ability. How we work together in this process will show others around us in our work environment what we are capable of. Sometimes this is not enough, though. One thing I will encourage all OTs out there who work as an OTR coded team is advocate for each other. You may know exactly what each of your roles are, and you may be working together extremely well, and I hope that is the case. But that doesn't mean that coworkers, especially non-related to OT, understand these same things. It is up to us to help educate and inform those around us about not only what it means to be an occupational therapist, because that is sometimes difficult in itself, but also what each of the roles are between the OTR and the CODA. You can't assume that everyone else understands this like you do. It is important that even administrators and other staff in your facility understand what the roles are. This will help ensure that each therapist is given the appropriate tasks and responsibilities for their license. Keep in mind that I believe most people we work with who don't know what the roles of OTRs and CODAs are really just don't know because they've never been taught or they've never taken the time to learn about it and figure it out. Not necessarily because they are trying to be disrespectful or anything else. Although there are probably some people out there that still do fit into that category as well. I would try to give people the benefit of the doubt and try to find ways to educate them without lecturing or becoming defensive. We worked hard to go to college and get the degrees and take the tests to become registered to practice. If we don't advocate for our own discipline, for ourselves, and our place in the work environment, no one else will. Before I end today, I would like to discuss a research study. The study is called Writing Forces Associated with Four Pencil Grass Patterns in Grade 4 Children. It was published in the American Journal of Occupational Therapy in 2013. This study looked at two things. One, 
Quote, what are the kinetic differences, if any, among the four pencil grasp patterns before and after an extended writing task? End quote. And two, to determine if there is a link between kinetic and functional differences. In this study, they are looking at these four pencil grasps, dynamic tripod, dynamic quadrupod, lateral tripod, and lateral quadrupod. These are the four pencil grasps that tend to be considered mature, which means that the smaller hand muscles are used to move the pencil when writing, rather than the immature grasp where you would see more of a whole arm movement to mark with the pencil. In the dynamic grasps, the thumb is on the opposite side of the pencil from the fingers, where in the lateral grasp, the thumb pad usually ends up touching the side of the index finger instead of the pencil. The pencil is generally stabilized using the web space of the thumb in this case. Just to make sure we are all on the same page, a tripod grasp is where you hold the pencil with your index and middle finger and thumb. And the quadrupod grasp uses the index, middle, and ring fingers plus the thumb. There are two more concepts to consider before I get into the specifics of the study. One is grip force. Grip force is how much force the thumb and fingers use to grip a pencil. And axial force, which is how much pressure is applied with the pencil down onto the paper or on the writing surface. This particular study looked at a sample of 74 fourth grade students with an equal number of boys and girls. The students volunteered for the study and all came from four different schools in the same area in Canada. The researchers wanted to measure the grip and axial forces, so they used a pen and a tablet that were set up with sensors to record the exact data of each of the forces. They used the Children's Handwriting Evaluation Scale, or the CHES, which is an assessment that takes two minutes to complete. All of the students chose to write in print rather than cursive. The procedure included the children each completing the CHES one time before doing a 10-minute writing task, where they were asked to copy as much of a story as they can in 10 minutes. Then they completed the CHES again after completing the 10-minute writing task. In a previous study, it was determined that a 10-minute writing task was long enough to show fatigue in third-grade students and that fourth-grade students have been known to perceive that this time frame alters their writing abilities. All of the students were observed to use one of the four grasp patterns that I mentioned earlier. There were additional students that used other grass patterns than the four outlined in this study, so their data was removed from the sample. The breakdown on the grasp of the participants is as follows. 22 of them used a dynamic tripod, 12 used dynamic quadrupod, 19 used a lateral tripod, and 21 used a lateral quadrupod. The results of the study indicate that the grip and axial forces, quote, were not significantly different among the four grasp patterns 
when compared with each other individually or when compared by the number of fingers on the barrel of the pencil, end quote. The differences of the grip and axial forces were significant when looking at thumb position. The students who used a lateral thumb grasp rather than an opposing thumb position used a larger amount of force to hold the pencil. This happened during the 10-minute copying task. However, there was no difference in the kinetics, the legibility, or the speed of writing between all, 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 four, all four. The researchers, researchers suggested that, as a result of this study, when working with students on handwriting, we should focus more on how the kids are forming their letters and increasing the speed of writing to improve legibility rather than focusing on changing their grasp patterns, especially if they are using one of the four patterns that were observed during this specific study. I think I will go ahead and end there for today. Remember that you can earn CEUs by listening to this show. You just get on the show notes on your app, or you can go to my website at mymidwesttherapy.com. Click on Add to Cart to purchase the test for that specific episode. I will send you a five-question test, and all you have to do is fill it out, email it back to me, and I will send you a certificate of completion, as long as you get at least an 80% on the test. And you can turn that into your state for continuing education units. Please make sure your state will accept home study type courses or webinars for credit. Some states have different regulations. This is just one way that you can help support my show, and you also get a benefit of some CEUs for your license. If you don't want or need the CEUs, you can always just listen for free and continue to enjoy the episodes. And you can also show your support um, by doing any of your Amazon shopping through my website. All you have to do is click on any of the Amazon links, and they will take you to the normal Amazon site where you can do your regular Amazon binge shopping. Holidays are coming up, and I know there will be a lot of purchasing coming up soon. This doesn't cost you any extra, but it does give me a little kickback. I appreciate any support from you as I want to be able to continue providing this content for everyone. Thank you so much for listening, and have a great day.